Happy New Year. It's the first time I get to say that to you. Um, we do an annual pilgrimage to Texas. It's just what our crew does. Uh, my wife's family moved from California to Texas, I think about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer than that. And uh, so every single year, right after Christmas, we fly out and, and then come back right around the third or fourth. And uh, we have just the quintessential Texas experience, which is not a California experience. It is totally different. And so in uh, pure Texas fashion, we land the airplane, uh, fly into Houston, go right to their ranch and start loading about eight hunting rifles into a gigantic Ford F-350 truck to go to their hunting property in, in uh, Central Texas. And so we drive to the hunting property and, and we've got to stop at Bucky's. Anybody know Bucky's? One guy knows Bucky's. All right, <laughs> you too. Bucky's is like the eighth wonder of the world. I have never seen anything like it in my life. I have a uh, picture to show you on the side screens there. There's a Bucky's, 128 gas pumps. 128. Could you even imagine a facility with 128 gas pumps? And when we were there, they were all full. Every single one of them was full, and there were five oil tankers lined up. They just cannot put it in the ground fast enough. And uh, the store is not just some little sort of convenience food store. It's a, like a Walmart, like a mini Walmart-sized deal just for hunters. It's a hunter's paradise. And there's everything you need for the road trip and everything you need for hunting right there in the gas station. It is this absolutely incredible experience. And uh, so we go hunting. Now, I'm not really the hunting type, but, you know, you go to Texas, and there's hunting property. It's kind of their thing. And uh, it's kind of a guy's deal, and we're helping fish and game. Fish and game says the doe population has to decrease to protect the ecosystem, and Texas hunters are just more than willing to, you know, help out. And so we go down there, bag a few deers, uh, uh, deer, deers, deersies, deer, uh, dress them on the field. Now, if you know what that is, it's an interesting experience. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to show you a slide of how to dress a deer on the field. But, uh, you know, you take the meat and you put it in a cooler, you know, you tag it, you have to fill out the paperwork for fishing game, and then you head back, and then, of course, you do what Texans do, which is to make deer sausage in your own garage. And so that's what we did the following day is we make deer sausage, and then we ate it the next day. So from the gun to the gut, you know, pretty quick, no messing around, uh, super fresh, uh, no preservatives. How are you, you Californians doing so far? Are you doing okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, <laughs> this morning we had women almost vomiting in this, you know, aisle. And so we got back from that. It's a good three-day, you know, hunting trip. And then uh, it was New Year's Eve. And on New Year's Eve, we do what Texans do, and you shoot off mortars in your backyard. And so uh, here's live footage, not live, but actual footage from New Year's Eve. And there it is. That's the backyard in Texas. Now, if, if you did that in California, um, there'd be massive swarms of police officers. You'd be beaten, tased, tried in a court of law, and you'd never see the light of day again. But in Texas, that's just kind of normal. You just shoot off these, you know, firework mortars. And then that next night was a lightning storm. Now, for those of you who have been to the south, you know that there's serious storms in that area. And, um, but I've never seen anything like this one. This was a crazy storm that was overnight. It was clear one day, crazy storm overnight, and clear the next day. And um, from 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., for that one hour, the sky was never dark. There was three to five lightning strikes per second for one hour. I mean, if you can imagine that, it just was lit like you wouldn't believe. And uh, so that was kind of fun. And then the next day, we did what Texans do, and you put uh, vehicles on blocks, you put a truck on blocks, and one day, you know, we'll fix it. And uh, the truck was called Bubba 2, just, you know, for the, <laughs> for the record, and fixed the barn, uh, did some electrical totally outside of code, you know, just the normal stuff. So that was, that was our Texas experience. But one thing is inescapable in Texas, and that is that there is a rift between Texas and California. You aware of that? There is no love between Texas and California. I don't think Californians care much, but Texans very much care. 
Now, we are the only one of my wife's side of the family that stayed in California. Their entire family, parents and kids, all moved from California to Texas. And so, you know, they are Texas strong, you know, Lone Star State, and they're, you know, as soon as you cross that border with your moving truck, all of a sudden the place you came from is terrible, and Texas is awesome. And about three dozen times a day, there'd be a jab against California. There's just that rift there. Um, You know, my poor wife is sort of the black sheep Californian of the bunch, and so whenever her parents introduce us to their friends, you know, they're like, this is my daughter and her family, and they're from California, you know, so there's just these jabs. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun and lighthearted. It, it really is. I think it is. But some rifts are more serious. For example, the rift that has been going on in our country forever, Democrat and Republican, right? There's a rift there. There's a very real rift that gets a little more serious. To get even more serious, there could be racial rifts where, you know, we're part of a certain racial community and then we start making fun of other races. That's very, very serious and very, very uh, terrible, obviously. But there's something about human nature that loves to be a part of a community. We love to be a part of a community with our own culture, and we celebrate that culture. Uh, But beyond celebrating the culture or community that we belong to, there is something in us that just loves to make fun of the other cultures, the other communities. It makes us feel good. Now, there's a rift in our country that is widening, and it's the rift between Christianity and mainstream American culture. And so to put it this way, the rift between Christianity and our mainstream culture it's widening. It's widening. Now, um, by all indications, this has been widening precipitously for the last 30 years, roughly. Uh, it was a reality three decades ago that evangelical conservative Christianity was the majority culture of our country and wielded a lot of power. If evangelical Christians decided to boycott a certain company, that, that company would take that very seriously and probably change their ways. Today, if evangelical conservative Christians boycott a company, that company would consider it a badge of honor. That's no joke. It has changed very dramatically in the last 30 years. So that, that rift is widening. Christians are now the minority of our culture, the minority voice and the minority influence in our culture. In fact, to go one step further, I believe our culture has Christianity almost as enemy number one. That's coming. It may not be here now, but that is coming. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we'll discuss over the course of January. But what I want to talk about specifically is our part in that. Because I believe that rift between Christianity and the American mainstream culture, I believe that a lot of it, if not most of it, is unnecessary. Because as we'll see through the course of January, there's a lot about the Christian culture that the mainstream American culture loves. But there's some parts about the Christian subculture that the American culture hates and bristles against. And not all of it is necessary. So, you know, we can't influence necessarily the American culture during church services or during a a series in January, but we can do some soul searching. We can do some self-evaluation of the broader American church and what we can do perhaps to improve. So that that cultural divide, that rift can potentially be healed. And that's largely, I think, on us. Let me put it this way. If the church doing some soul searching, would get back to advancing the cause of Christ, which is the mission statement of Rancho, if we would get back to advancing the cause of Christ, instead of fueling culture wars, we could see an incredibly inviting and caring atmosphere reemerge in the church. And this is a lot of what January is going to be about. The Christians love to take pride in our faith, rightfully, and pride in our Christian subculture, but we do too much bashing other cultures and bashing other groups. And even, you know, bashing whatever, 
politics, the decline of America, people who do not agree with our biblical stances on morality, you know, fill in the blank on what that might be. Instead of involving ourselves in a culture war against the mainstream American culture, how about we focus on advancing the cause of Christ, which is what we'll talk about through the course of the month. And if we do that, we kind of lay down our weapons and start living more like Jesus, and we'll get into that a little bit today. I think that rift between Christianity and American culture will start to heal. That'll be because we're acting more Christ-like. And that inviting and caring atmosphere will reemerge in the church. And it'll be that same inviting and caring atmosphere that Jesus created as he welcomed all. He welcomed everyone into what he called the kingdom of heaven, where love is the only law and truth was always shared with what? Grace. Jesus' best friend, the apostle John, introducing Jesus in John chapter 1, said, Jesus is the light of the world, full of grace and truth. You can hold on to truth that you very much love and cherish, but always share it and posture ourselves with grace. Now, there are some in the Christian community, particularly in the conservative Christian community, who would say, hey, listen, the message of Christianity is offensive, and it's supposed to be offensive, and it's supposed to come against cultures. And, uh, and to that, I would say, hey, take a deeper look into where the Scripture says people are offended by the message of Christianity. Keep in mind, the message of Christianity is a message of love and grace. That is the message, that instead of attaining favor from God or the gods through morality, through good works, through religious devotion, it is God who did all the work for us on our behalf by sending his son, Jesus, to do all the work to forgive us of all of our failures, take our failures upon himself, die for those, and then rise again to give hope and new life to us and to the world with a great vision of renewing and restoring this whole creation so that all the world will enjoy God's grace, enjoy God's love, and share God's grace and share God's love. Does that sound offensive? That's not offensive. That is powerfully exciting. It's only offensive to those who peddle religion. Because those who peddle religion are saying, wait a minute, it's not all about love and grace and, and mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone. No, we gotta do our part. We've gotta work our way to God. We've gotta be obedient. We have to be religiously fervent. We have to be sold out, all in, you know, totally devoted. And then we will earn God's favor or earn answered prayers or earn eternal life. So the only people that are really offended by the message of Christ are those who peddle religion. And we say that in Galatians 5, chapter 11. This is one of the famous verses that talks about the offense of the gospel. Uh, the apostle Paul, who's writing this, says, brothers, if I'm still preaching religious law, in this case, he's talking about circumcision, and I won't get into the details of that, but just consider that one of the key religious laws. If I'm still preaching religious law, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Paul says, I'm not being persecuted because the gospel is so hard religiously. He says throughout the course of the book of Galatians, I'm being persecuted because I'm preaching grace and love by the spirit of Christ, not by the law. This is what's offensive, and it's really offensive to religious peddlers, religious leaders. Some might say, hey, why do we have to be critical of the church, right? The church is a beautiful thing, and she really is. The church is an amazing, an amazing thing. It's, it's the bride of Christ. And it's been said uh, more than once that God loves his bride, but sometimes she sure is ugly, right? It's the bride of Christ. So the church of God, the bride of Christ is a treasure. And, and we you know, never want to just slam the church. There's a lot of people who do that. And we're not going to do that through the course of the month. But we are going to take a good, solid look at who we are and what we do and how we posture ourselves in this world. 
In 2009, uh, Domino's Pizza made a bold move, and um, this bold move was really their salvation. They were in steep decline. Uh, people were not buying Domino's anymore. Uh, other pizza chains were starting up that were uh, far more popular. So in 2009, Domino's Pizza put millions of dollars into an ad campaign that essentially told the entire world their pizza was terrible. Now, two things about that. They didn't need to tell anybody their pizza was terrible, right? That's just an objective fact, right? But number two, the, the street credit they got for that ad campaign was huge. And a lot of business analysts would say that that's why Domino's Pizza still exists today is because they were just honest. And they put millions into this last-ditch effort to basically tell the world, hey, we stink as a pizza company and we're going to do better. And they produced uh, a lot of um, commercials and ad time uh, to tell the world that pizza was horrible. I'm going to show you a, a one-minute uh, piece of a four-minute commercial they produced about how terrible their pizza was. Let's take a look. Pizza, where's the love? <laughs> how hard? Bread, sauce, cheese, fresh ingredients. Doesn't feel like there's much love in Domino's Pizza. Domino's Pizza Crust to me is like cardboard. Is it hard to watch this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to watch. I hear what some folks are saying about our stuff. Oh, this one's bad. Worst excuse for pizza I've ever had. The sauce tastes like ketchup. Totally void of flavor. You know what? When you first hear it, it's 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 shocking. The cardboard complaint is the most common one. This we hear over and over and over. I mean, that hits you right in the heart. This is what we've done. This is what I've done, you know, for 25 years now. You can either use negative comments to get you down, or you can use them to excite you and energize your process of making a better pizza. We did the latter. Most companies uh, hide the criticism that they're, they're getting, and we actually faced it head on. Some people didn't get us credit for the, the taste of our product. That's what we're fixing. All right, now you can decide if Domino's Pizza is any better now. That's up to you. I'll leave that you know, to your discussions in small groups this week, right? But uh, it is very healthy to just say sometimes, you know what, we need to take a look at ourselves, and we need to make some changes. Uh, statistics say that 80% of us in this room made New Year's resolutions. That's the normal average. 80% of us made a New Year's resolution or two. And why did you do that? You did that because you did some soul searching. I made a couple commitments myself. We did some soul searching, and we came to the conclusion that there's a few things that we might need to change. We might need to change our diet, our exercise plans, our spending habits, how we use our time, family time. We decided that we need to make a few tweaks. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a good thing to be honest and say, hey, we need to change in a couple of ways. I saw a Tim Keller video. Uh, he did a Google talk. It's kind of like a TED talk, but uh, there's no real time constraint, so it's quite long. But uh, I want to show you a one-minute clip of Tim Keller. He addresses this issue of the rift between Christianity and our mainstream culture, and he lays a lot of that squarely on how we as a church have postured ourselves in this, in this, uh, in this culture. Now, if you don't know Tim Keller, he is one of the most well-respected church leaders in the country, and he's well-respected by everyone. He's well-respected by the Christian you know, conservatives, by Christian uh, liberals, by academia. He's, he's a brilliant intellectual. He's very well-respected by politicians and by the unbelieving community, agnostics and atheists. They respect him because he's such a thoughtful uh, individual. He actually pastors Redeemer Church in uh, New York, which is a conservative church uh, in New York City made up of young people. Would you possibly believe that there's such a church in New York City? Yes, there's one. It's Tim Keller's, right? 
And uh, so it's very well respected, and his voice in this subject is very important. Let's take a look. It's a one-minute clip. It says, I'm a 20-something Christian and American. I'm often told by older Christian friends and family that America is becoming increasingly secular. Christian morality is uh, disappearing, society is degradating, and we are at a perilous point in history. Do you think that's a valid assessment, or should, should uh, Christians be concerned? How do you think Christians should get, uh, respond to cultural shifts towards secularism? Well, we're in luck, because that's an easy question to answer, believe it or not. Uh, the point is that it's both good and bad news. Uh, the answer is, I don't like the full decline narrative. If, if God is in charge, and America's getting more secular, then God's got some good purpose for that, okay? And, the, and one of the which, is, I think, is to humble Christians and to say, you know, to some degree, when we were more in power, we didn't use our power very well. So it's time to really rethink uh, who we are and, and what it means to relate in the world. So it's, not all, it's just not all bad news, but, it's not, but on the other hand, it is getting more secular, yes. And uh, the future will be, um, uh, I think, difficult for Christians to adjust to. American Christians. I'm so glad he said I'm an American and I'm a Christian because, frankly, there's almost nowhere else in the world where uh, where, where Christians are in, you know, have have this this memory of a sort of past uh, influence because most everywhere else Christians are a minority and they learn how to be good neighbors and still to lift up, you know, what they believe and still serve others. I do think American Christians are going to have to humble themselves and become. Uh, frankly, better neighbors than they have been in the past. And that's not bad news. But there will be, there'll be some sad things happen too. There'll be some things lost in our culture too. A lesson here is that Christians now as the minority voice need to learn some lessons. When we were in power and we had influence, we came across very abrasive and judgmental and condemning and arrogant and harsh, and that list goes on and on and on. We do not use our power and influence very well. But now that we're in the minority status in terms of cultural influence, Tim Keller is calling us, as are many great Christian leaders in America, calling the Christian church to be more humble and to become better neighbors. And if you analyze, really, the ministry of Christ and the cause of Christ and the early church, that's exactly what you will find. So what's happened over the last 30 years is, is, I think, in large part because the church has not used our power very well. People are fleeing from the church, and that is happening at, frankly, a very alarming rate, particularly among young people. So there have been studies like you would not believe to try to detail and chronicle and document why this has happened. Uh, these are extensive studies from the George Barna Group, uh, David Kinneman, Pew Research Institute, the Brookings Institute, and literally thousands of books and blogs and periodicals about the decline of the church and why people leave. And inarguably, it boils down to six things, and we'll talk about these things during the month of January. Um, first among them, maybe not first, but one reason why people leave the church is because of infighting, infighting in the church. Uh, the church loves to fight against each other. I mean, you have all these camps within the Christian community, and I mean dozens of little camps in the Christian community that are fighting each other over little doctrines that honestly don't matter very much, uh, how the world is going to end and all the details of that, and how the world um, began and all the details uh, of that, and everything in between, we're fighting each other. I mean, thousands, probably tens of thousands of books have been written about churches slamming other churches and camps slamming other camps for various opinions on various little things, missing the big picture of the cause of Christ. And Steve addressed this last week masterfully. He talked about this vision of the church being unified. Even though our opinions are diverse, we can be absolutely unified around following Christ and our belief in Christ and the vision of Christ, advancing the cause of Christ. If you missed last week, and pretty much everybody did, 
Uh, it was New Year's Day, so there's four people in church. Um, so if you were one of the four, you heard it, it was great. I encourage, encourage the rest of you, and this is homework. Go to rancho.tv and, and grab Steve's message. It was amazing, this great vision about unity in, in the midst of diversity. Um, and I will tell you that of all the churches I'm in deep relationship with, and I'm probably in deep relationship with 100 plus churches, Rancho is by far the most diverse in terms of our thinking. Uh, all you have to do is look at our staff. Our staff comes from everywhere. I mean everywhere. We have this incredibly diverse staff when it comes to Christian thinking, and, uh, and we don't all walk in lockstep marching to the beat of one you know, senior pastor who's telling everybody what to do. Um, no way. We do not want that kind of community. We want a wonderfully diverse community, but still stay in unity together. Uh, the second thing, and we'll talk about this for the last 15 minutes of our time together, is the church has a reputation for being unthinking. You have to check your brain at the door to come into church. We don't want to think too deeply, right? Another part of our reputation is that we're shallow. We're shallow. We're fairly thin, boring, irrelevant. We talk about things that don't really connect with daily life. Another reputation the church has that causes people to leave the church is that we're against science. And we're going to talk about this next week. And I don't do a lot of promotion to this degree about a particular Sunday, but I'm telling you, next week is the week, like the week. So you got to be here next week. We're talking about whether a Christian can take science seriously. And to just kind of tip my hand a little bit, the answer I'm going to talk about next week is, <laughs> we sure can. Uh, creation itself is a revelation of God, wonderful revelation of God. And uh, so we'll talk about what it means for a Christian to embrace science. This is one of the major reasons why people leave the church. Another reason is that the church is judgmental. Of course, you know, we're known more for what we stand against than what we stand for. And then the church is, is, is exclusive, our culture is a multi-culture. We value multi, right? We value that melting pot of being um, multi-ethnic and multi-racial and multi-cultural, multi-generational. Um, most churches are very homogenous in all those ways. And so we need to really think about how exclusive we are. So just to talk in our final uh, minutes together, to talk about what it means to be a thinking Christian, uh, I want to show you what's generally assumed in our culture today. The assumption is... Now, you have to check your brain at the door in order to be a part of the Christian community. That's the assumption. That is a widely held assumption. You talk to people who have left church, you talk to people who have never gone to church, and you, you uh, ask them some questions about their perception of church, and I will tell you, the same thing will come out of their mouth. I've got a lot of non-Christian friends. I, I really love hanging out with people outside the church. You know, kind of keeps you grounded and keeps you in the real world, right? And they will say, it'll just roll off their tongue. Yeah, you know, it, people just kind of show up and, and it's just a bunch of, you know, fairy tales, believe a bunch of fairy tales. And you, you check your brain at the door and just kind of believe whatever you're told, right? That's the generally held assumption. And it's hard to argue that. Um, the idea of blind faith, you just follow, you know, blindly, whatever you're told. You can't question anything. You can't doubt anything. You have to reject science. Um, that's the general reputation of an unthinking church. To put it this way, just believe what you're told and comply. That's the reputation. And if anyone challenges what you're told to believe, then they're dangerous. We want to keep things small. We want to keep things safe. We want to keep things contained Pastor tells you what you believe, and you nod your head and believe. If you don't believe what the pastor says, now you're in dangerous territory, right? And, and the reality is that that doesn't create the kind of healthy learning community that I think Jesus and the apostles uh, envisioned. So we've got to look to the ministry of Jesus in the early church, I think, to really find out what the vision is for a thinking church or a learning community. And I think it starts with Jesus' teaching uh, about the great commandment. 
There's all kinds of arguments about which is the great commandment, you know, what do we have to do in order to have, you know, the, uh, uh, the most obedience to God and, and the, you know, the, the order, the list of the commandments and what to do in order to earn God's approval. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you one commandment. And the commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your, what? Mind. This is the greatest commandment. And if this is the greatest commandment, I think there's an invitation here that is powerful. A lot of times in the Christian community, I, you know, I feel God's presence and it's a, it's a heart thing and, and faith is about the heart. Uh, it's about just kind of believing because you believe. Well, there's something more than the heart. It's a whole person, the heart, the soul, the mind. God gave us the incredible gift of our minds. In fact, I am firmly convinced that the gray matter between our ears you know that slimy, ugly, gray, foldy thing between your ears that most of us have? That mind is an incredible miracle. I think it's, it's the miracle of the cosmos. I mean, to analyze the power of that brain and how God mysteriously makes personhood uh, out of spirit and out of this gray matter is absolutely miraculous. How we think, how we process, how we store information, how we recall information, how we think more complexly, it's an amazing miracle between our ears. God put that there for a reason. He wants us to engage this mind, not turn it off in all matters that involve him. He wants us to use it and to use all of it and to enjoy loving him, yes, with our heart and yes, with our soul and yes, with our mind. Labrie is a Christian think tank and um, I've read a lot of books that have come from Labrie. I, I did especially in uh, my high school and college years. Uh, it's an amazing uh, group of folks that have um, really contributed wonderfully to this idea of healing the rift between Christianity and the mainstream culture. And here's what Labrie says in one particular article. Culture tells us that the Bible is just a, a load of fairy tales. And for many Christians, their response to this has been the following. We don't bother with all those questions, right? We don't want to bother with it. Christianity is about the heart, so we just believe while the world descends into the abyss. That's the message our culture is getting from the church. We don't want to deal with these complex questions. They're hard. So this defensive posture has led Christians into a kind of ghetto where we've become separated from the culture in which we live. We don't want to deal with these questions. We just want to believe. Now, I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So the question today is, should Christians have a more open mind? Should Christians have a more open mind? You guys are nodding your head more than any other service. I love that. <laughs> Evening encore. Love it. The other services were like, is this a trick question? And I understand why it's a trick question, because it's not an easy question, right? If we open our minds, does that mean we can hold on to nothing? I mean, that's kind of the question. If we open our minds, does that mean we abandon some of the core tenets of the Christian faith that have been in place for 2,000 years? You know, if we open our mind, do we throw out any measure of truth and we're, we just say, hey, let's just talk about everything without any foundation under our feet? And the answer is, is no. I actually want to um, just, just lead you through about a 30-second time with Donald DeMarco. He's... Uh, He's not a believer, he's a philosopher, he's a college professor, and he writes incredibly about what an open mind really should be, and I think this is really helpful for us. He says this, the value of an open mind is to see what is there and grasp, apprehend, or close the mind on its proper object. There's no point in keeping the mind open and never grasping or understanding anything. 
So he says an open mind has its value, but only an open mind towards the purpose of closing your mind around something good. If you just keep your mind open to anything, you can, you can open your mind to very destructive, horrible things. You can open your mind to things like, hey, my race is superior and other races need to be exterminated. I mean, should we open our mind to that? Of course not, right? There's, there, there's a process where we open our mind, but then we, we, we then close it to reject certain ideas that are terrible, or we close it to embrace certain ideas that are good and helpful. He goes on to say this, the mind was made for truth, not eternally avoiding it. Similar to the hand, which was made to open and close so that it could grasp and hold on to things or let them go. Some of you might have noticed I brought up two apples, wondering what in the world I'm doing with two apples up here. Well, let's, um, let's take this illustration of Mr. DeMarco and say the mind is like the hand. We want the hand to be open so that it can grasp certain things, analyze certain things. Okay, this apple is a, a Granny Smith apple, and it is near flawless, a near flawless specimen of this uh, fruitage there. So that's a good thing, right? I open my, my mind, and I grab onto something, and it is this nasty, uh, horrible, gross, bruised, brown, leaking apple. And so I'm using my open mind to grasp, grasp and analyze this thing, but I'm going to reject it. I'm now going to cast this aside, and I'm going to embrace the good. And so my open mind has embraced the good and rejected the bad, right? So an open mind can be very helpful towards this end. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul said as he's uh, writing to the early church. All kinds of ideas are swirling around. The New Testament had not been written yet. They had the Old Testament. They had the teaching of Jesus that was passed on by a lot of oral tradition. And so there's a lot of debate about who God is and who Jesus is. And so here's what the Apostle Paul says. This is critical today. Test everything and hold on to the good. Isn't that cool? It's in the Bible. <laughs> Test everything. Open your mind. There is a world out there to be explored. There are thoughts out there to be explored. Be involved in this amazing learning process. We don't need to just sit and get downloaded information and dutifully comply and turn off our brains. We can be alive with thoughts and opinions and yes, even questions and doubts. What a wonderful environment that is. Test everything, but hold on to the good. So what is this kind of community that we're talking about? I think we're talking about this. We're talking about a learning community, not a lecturing community. Think about that. Can we be a learning community, not a lecturing community? Now, there's some history behind this. Um, in the uh, Hebrew culture, uh, gathering around synagogues um, was very popular. Synagogues were sort of um, temple-like environments in the outlying areas. Not everybody could worship in the temple, so there were synagogues. In the synagogues, it was a learning community. There was discussion, healthy discussion within the synagogue that created interpretive opinions about God and his word. A wonderful communal experience, not a lecturing experience, a communal experience, a learning uh, environment. Jesus and his disciples were a learning experience. Jesus didn't just gather his disciples together and lecture to them. In fact, he spent much of his teaching telling them stories and asking them questions. It's been documented by Martin Copenhaver uh, that Jesus asked 307 questions of his disciples, a bunch of which they got the answers wrong, right? He asked 307 questions to his disciples. He only answered three of the 187 questions that were asked of him. What does that mean? That means the community that Jesus put together was not just about him lecturing answers, 
but, but pulling thoughts and pulling experiences out of his disciples and walking with them in faith and walking with them in life and walking with them in their experiences on a leadership development journey, engaging their mind. And when they got their, the answers to his questions wrong or when they did something stupid, which was a lot of the time, Jesus was very patient with them as he's very patient with us, right? And he's guiding and directing and leading them uh, in a way that's very, very powerful. The Apostle Paul also preached Christ in community. I want to show you this on the screen. Acts 19, 9 through 10. I skipped a bunch of slides. Let's see how good they are. Acts 19, 9 through 10 says this. Um, very nice back there. Paul had discussions. Get this. Paul had discussions daily in the lecture halls. Now, this is in the province of Asia. He had discussions daily in the lecture halls. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul was not just preaching in synagogues and religious um, environments because if we're just lecturing in religious environments, all we're doing is downloading information to small groups of people who already believe. The Apostle Paul was lecturing in the halls, in the study halls of Asia. And because he was lecturing, not lecturing, discussing, daily discussions in those halls, the word of the Lord and the message of Christ went out to all of Asia. And because of the effectiveness of Paul's ministry in Asia, we are sitting here today as believers of Jesus Christ. The early church was also a learning community. We see in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 through 47, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The favor of all the people. The message of Christ, love and grace, shared in community, enjoying God, shared in community, enjoying one another, and enjoying this life that God gave us and having that joy spill out into our relationships in the world what happens is the favor of the people. Not people leaving the church in droves, but coming to the church in droves because the church is the light of Jesus Christ, sharing the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And this was the reputation of the church community for about 300 years. Then in the fourth century, the church became the state religion of Rome. And that's a dangerous thing, right? Uh, melting church and state is bad, bad news. We love our founding fathers who made a little separation there, right? And, um, and so having a government religion is what happened in the fourth century. And as a result, um, the church went from a community-centered um, uh, organism, really, to an institution, a rigid institution, a rigid governmental institution with rigid hierarchies. And so tradition became the center of the church until the Reformation in the 16th century. Uh, there was all kinds of corruption that was happening in the state church and so um, the Reformation came in to free us from that. And as a result of the Reformation, it was all about the truth. And so the Bible became the center of the church. So in the early church, it was the community as the center. In the state church, it was tradition and rules in the center. In the Reformation era, which we still live in today, the Bible is the center. And because the Bible is the center, what happened through the Reformation is the profession of pastor popped up. Teacher, pastor, teacher because only somebody who was very educated in the Bible could teach the Bible, and all of the masses really ended up sitting and listening. And so you have professional teachers and then people who sit and listen to lectures. That's normal in the, this Reformation era. So we've sort of lost that community-centered learning community. And as a result, the church is largely a lecturing community. Now, how can we change that? How can we really embrace our minds and invite this world who, who just thinks we're turning off our brains and, and we're just believing, you know, whatever the pastor says, how can we turn this into a learning community? Well, there's just, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I've got a couple ideas though. Um, first of all, I believe it begins with humility. We just have to be humble. 
A learning community is a humble community. If our minds are closed, that's the most arrogant thing possible. You know what? I've got all the answers and, and my mind is closed. I don't want any new fangled ideas. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here that knows everything about everything? Anybody? Got to be one of you. No? All right. Anybody here uh, knows everything about God? Anybody here knows everything about God? Okay. Anybody here knows everything about the Bible? Is there anybody here who knows everything about the Bible? No? Anybody here believe I know everything about the Bible? Or Pastor Steve? Yeah, that's what, everybody laughs, right? You laugh at that one. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the love there. Of course I don't know everything about the Bible. So why would anybody sit under, under any pastor to receive all of their doctrinal information or teaching? Why would, that's nuts. Why would anybody believe that all of their doctrine comes from their senior pastor and I go to that church because I believe what the pastor says? Whatever he says, I believe. And if I don't believe what the pastor says, then I gotta find another church so I can align my thinking perfectly with the pastor. And the pastor sets the doctrine for the whole church and that's that. Uh, to me, that's a horrible thing because there's so much to learn from so many areas of this great and beautiful world that God created. So many minds in this world, in the church, and frankly, outside the church, and so much to discover about God's creation. There's an exciting journey of learning together that doesn't revolve around the teaching pastor, whether it's me or Steve or anybody up here or anybody in any pulpit in any church. Let's be a vibrant learning community that is humble. One other thing in this regard, I don't wanna freak you out, but I don't get my sermons from God. I do not get my sermons from God. I simply don't. Now, there's some people who, who think, well, you know, the pastor is the anointed, and the anointed gets the message from God, and then he speaks for God to the people, and it's in everybody's, there's the voice of God through the pastor. There's some people who hold to that. Not many at Rancho, thankfully, <laughs> right? My messages don't come from God. Now, I want to be very diligent in my message preparation, and so I spend a ton of time in God's Word and a ton of time reading people who spend a ton of time in God's Word who are much, much smarter than I do, diving into the history of God's Word and the culture uh, where God's Word was, was written. And, and I'm diligent in my preparation. I spend a ton of time preparing for every single message. I write word for word every single message to make sure that everything is said as, as true as I can articulate it. And, and, and hopefully over time, as I walk with the Lord and try to, you know, spend my, my focus and energy on him and worship him and know him and, and serve him, hopefully my mind aligns, as God's word says, with the mind of Christ, right? Hopefully there's an increasing alignment. It'll never be right there, but hopefully an increasing alignment. And my goal is that with every sermon, most of what I say mostly represents most of what God might think, right? That's about as good as I can hope. Do not confuse my sermon or anybody's sermon with the voice of God, please, it is not. I do not wanna set the doctrine of the church. I wanna be a discussion starter. That's the pinnacle for me. I wanna be a discussion starter. Let's get into God's word, let's learn, let's learn God's word, but I could be flat wrong. In fact, I had a conversation over the weekend. Uh, somebody sent me an email and said, hey, um, you know, you were my youth pastor 20 years ago, I'm back at Rancho, and some of what you're saying is a little different than what you said 20 years ago. And I said, first of all, wow, uh, for you, remembering what you learned 20 years ago. That's incredible. I don't know what I've learned 20 minutes ago, right? So that's a miracle right there. And secondly, I just said, I'm sorry. I got some key things wrong 20 years ago as a pastor leading a ministry. I got some key things wrong. 
And there are some things I said, no doubt, in 2016 that in 2000, you know, whatever, 36, I'm going to go, wow, I didn't say that quite right. We're all human beings on a learning journey, right? Let's be humble about that. I got to go quicker here. A learning community embraces a diversity of thought. I don't need to spend any time on this because Steve nailed it last week. Uh, we can have a wonderfully diverse, thoughtful community and still be unified relationally and unified around the cause of Christ. Uh, third, a learning community embraces doubt, embraces questions, embraces people really struggling. Um, I mean, listen, life is a struggle. Life is a struggle. So much of the time, life is a struggle. You have an illness, you, you lose a loved one, um, a circumstance happens to you out of left field and you're thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good person, why did that happen to me? And somebody who's a terrible person, you know, their life's going really well. Half the book of Psalms is about the injustice of this whole life, right? This life is very, very hard sometimes and when life is hard, we question. Or when we want to engage our brain, something doesn't make sense, we want to have the freedom to say, hey, let's wrestle through that together. Let's ask questions together. But the reality is, most people do not feel safe doubting in church. Because if we doubt, oh boy, that's dangerous, right? If you question what the pastor says, that's dangerous. And you might not even be saved. I've heard that as a young person. I heard that more times than I can count. If you doubt God, you doubt his word, you might not even be saved. Oh my gosh. You realize the weight we put on people? You have no freedom to question. You just dutifully nod your head and believe for no reason other than somebody told you to believe it. That's not a learning community. It's not healthy. We've got to embrace doubt. Isn't that how Jesus led his disciples? His disciples answered wrong. Most of the time, Jesus answered, asked them a question. And we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples making dumb mistakes and dumb decisions and saying dumb things. What did Jesus do? You might not even be saved, you're out. No, he walked with them. Might have rolled his eyes a couple of times. And you can almost see him rolling his eyes when he said to his disciples, have I been with you so long? Are you still making that same mistake? But then he walks graciously and patiently with them through their failures, through their questions, through their wrong answers, and through their doubts. You remember one of his disciples, uh, Tom? Could be called uh, Tommy, Tommy D, T-Dog. I mean, uh, he had a problem, right? Uh, he's now known as what? Doubting Thomas. He, made, he had one little doubt, now the entire world forever calls him Doubting Thomas. And I'm telling you, I would be Thomas. Keep in mind, 10 disciples are in a room. One of them hung himself. This is Judas. There's 10 disciples in the room. The resurrected Christ visits the 10 disciples. And they're like, oh, wow, this is crazy. They didn't believe before Jesus met them. But Jesus meets them, visits them, and they are all excited. And they go, uh, hey, uh, T-Dog, Jesus rose again from the dead. I have a little trouble believing that. If you buried a friend of yours a couple weeks ago and another friend of yours says, hey, you know that guy we buried a couple weeks ago? He's alive. Raised from the dead. Won't you have some questions? I'd have some questions. One week later, Jesus visits uh, Thomas and says, hey, I understand. <laughs> you need a visit. He didn't berate him. Didn't say maybe you're not even saved. What did he say? Hey, Thomas, put your finger in the wounds where the nails pierce my hands. Put your hand in my side where the spear pierced my side. Now you see, believe. Now you see, believe. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Jesus gave him the courtesy of walking with him through his doubt and gave him an experience that strengthened his faith. 
That's an incredible reality that I think we have got to embrace. Last thing and we're done, I've kept you a little long and I apologize. A learning community embraces foundational truths. This is important. Learning community is not so open-minded that kind of anything goes and we say whatever. No, we're open-minded, but when we see something that's true, we hold on to that truth. And so we believe foundationally that God is a heavenly father, as just as Jesus said, and that he's eager to save us, not condemn us. So eager to save us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to preach a brand new reality coming to earth, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, where there is one law, the law of love, and that a community is building of grace and compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ who laid his life down to bear our suffering, to bear the injustice of the world, to bear our failures, to forgive our failures. And he rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ experiences the eternal life God gives us as a gift for free. And that love that we receive for Christ fills us and he gives us his spirit and gives us his word and gives us one another to be on this incredible journey, this journey of saving this world from its darkness and decay and corruption. And by the love and grace of God, we hold to these truths and we hold them firmly, but we hold them humbly and we hold them graciously. And I think if this is the posture of the church not being arrogant and dismissive and holding on closed-minded to things that were downloaded to us, but if we're a learning community, growing, building a, a, a wonderful structure upon the foundation of truth, and we are inviting people to come in and join us, bring your doubts, bring your questions, bring your opinions, and let's have this wonderful learning community, I think then people who have left the church might give it one more try. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that comes from you through Christ your son to us. He's the fullness of divinity. He represents all of who you are and he shared this wonderful message. There's a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of love and grace, of compassion, of mercy, of help to those who are struggling coming to this earth and he proved that by laying his life down to forgive us, to bear the sins of the world upon himself, to bear the suffering and injustice of the world upon himself, but then to rise again from the dead to give new life and new hope to those who believe, those who have received your love and, and now by your spirit, by your word, by the community that we have together, we can not only receive your unconditional love for us, but we can share it. And as we share your love humbly and graciously to this world, we know that the light of Jesus Christ will shine. Thank you for forgiving us, forgiving your church for wherever we have failed to shine the light and love of Christ, wherever we have been arrogant, judgmental, dismissive, unthinking, God, thank you for forgiveness and grace. Thank you that you can rise us up and lift our head and equip us to be the light of Jesus Christ, sharing his grace and mercy, unconditional grace and mercy from you through Christ to us. And may we be so humble and so gracious and so open to using our, our God-given minds to explore who you are and your great plans for us. May we be such a wonderful learning community that people who have given up on church would give it one more try. In Christ's name we pray, amen.